Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. Hi, I'm Rahul Chakrabedi, today's other co-host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm very excited to welcome Caroline Lowe, President and CEO of Glimpse Bio. Thanks so much for joining us today, Caroline. Thank you, and it's a real pleasure to join you both. Thanks for inviting me. Great. So to start off, Caroline, we'd love to start from the top and hear about your background, career journey, and how you got to where you are today. Thank you. So I have over 20 years career in pharmaceutical R&D and I started my career off in, in drug development and uh, had the great fortune to lead a drug that came to market. Probably should have struck my career in drug development at that point. But I carried on and you know, very deliberately kind of expanded my career experiences and took a broad path that included uh, an extended stint in regulatory. I then built and led a market access organization led a $7.5 billion commercial business unit. And then most recently, uh, I had the number two position in the R&D organization at Bristol Myers Squibb, where I had responsibility for portfolio and strategy and operations. And it was a very exciting time at BMS. We were expanding very extensively into oncology and also sort of focusing our, our portfolio as well. And so it was just, it was a great time to be there. And I really, really enjoyed the experience. So towards the end of my time there, I really started to think about, you know, what I wanted to do next. And, you know, there are a few things that have really, you know, kind of been sort of central to my career and central to my career theme. And it's sort of this notion of building empowered and diverse and inclusive teams. You know, I found that to be very effective. So I, I knew that I wanted to be part of kind of building an organization. I always wanted to focus on solving, you know, really hard problems. So, so it, had to, it had to be a difficult thing that I went and, and did. And, you know, sort of the, the notion of transformational science kind of had to, had to be at the core of it. You know, I spent a long time looking at a lot of the technology that was emerging out of the Boston biotech scene. Eventually was really attracted to the technology that Glimpse was focused on, which, you know, was actually a slightly odd move in a, in a lot of sense for someone with my background, you know, a therapeutic drug developer. And, and Glimpse, in fact, is focused in the diagnostic space. Glimpse's technology actually has the potential to solve a problem that had dogged a lot of my career experience. And it's sort of this question of how do you both detect disease as well as determine response to treatment? And if I sort of describe it simplistically like that, a lot of you know you and probably a lot of your listeners will say, sure, yeah, that's a real problem in drug development. How do we understand target engagement? How do we understand whether we have early responders? You know, how do we deal with, you know, surrogate endpoints issues in clinical development? And then, you know, for the whole plethora of diseases, how do we, you know, we have patients going on long diagnostic odysseys. Well, you know, Glimpse's technology is a platform that has the potential to break that code. And for me to be part of developing something like that and, and bringing that forward was really very exciting. And so that's where, you know, that's how I kind of ended up at Glimpse. And now, you know, we're a couple of years in and we have some really great data and we're very excited about the journey that we're on. That's awesome. So, you know, maybe to sort of drill in into greater depth on that, I would love to learn a little bit more about the technology, sort of the unique perspective you're all bringing to market, given that I think it sounds like you're one of the first sort of to pursue the approach you're taking. 
the technology that we have basically can detect real-time biological changes at the site of disease. And we do that using activity-based sensors that are bioengineered and are tunable to any protease-mediated disease. So we have over 570 proteases native in the body. And those proteases are involved in every aspect of human health and disease. And they, in fact, you know, are encoded or involved in many different diseases. And so what we do is we go through a discovery and development process to understand, you know, which combinations of proteases are involved in a specific disease. We build a custom biomarker panel to understand that. And then using that sort of custom biomarker panel or combination of sensors, we can then determine, you know, basically what a disease state is and whether a patient is then responding to treatment. You know, it's a very, it's very elegant, simple design at, at its core, but it's actually detecting this real-time disease activity, which, you know, becomes, you know, very valuable clinical, you know, clinically actionable information. It's awesome. You know, so... Given that the technology is uh, somewhat exciting and new, and you're focused on a protease-derived mediated diseases, do you see that long-term trajectory of the company sort of staying uh, with that as the scientific core, or do you see the technology potentially being able to extend to other types of biomolecules? It's a really interesting question. So right now we're focused a lot in this, or we're focused exclusively in this space, but we see a very broad applicability. And so what I saw initially is that vision, right, that you could use the technology to understand preclinically whether you have target engagement, that you could use that in a translational research setting to understand whether you have early efficacy response, that you can take the same panel or biomarker panel into, you know, late clinical development you know, as a surrogate marker for efficacy response. And then finally, you know, something in an approved setting then to both identify patients who should be treated as well as to track their response to treatment. That's a very bold vision and that's a broad, you know, that's a broad utilization. That's a lot where we're focused right now. You know, you fast forward into the future, I think that, you know, we don't have to focus uniquely on proteases, right? There are many other classes of proteins that we could focus on. And, and that's, you know, I think that's something that for the long term is, is in our sights. I think the other th interesting thing is that you know, the proximity of our of our approach to drug development, you know, is very interesting. And the question of how much that starts to overlap, I think, is something that you know potentially we'll end up exploring. But I have to say, right now, and certainly for the foreseeable future, we're focused on this as you know something of diagnostic potential. The unmet need in the diagnostic arena is so significant uh, that that we really want to sort of deliver the value there. Great, thanks, Caroline. Given your, your background entirely on, on drug development in the past, I'm curious to learn about you know, if you had to have any sort of shift in mental model around development going from BMS to a, a diagnostic company and what that transition looked like. It's an interesting question. Over the time, particularly at BMS, uh, we have been focusing a lot on the idea of, you know, how could we how could we be more biotech-like? I think many pharma companies are, you know, are trying to, to do the same. And BMS, I, had prided itself on you know, trying to be as you know very agile, small, to make decision making as decentralized as possible. And in fact, we had established a development model for all of our development programs that were not oncology that was more biotech-like in nature. Of course, it's not fully biotech, right? It, it doesn't have that degree of agility, but it was certainly, you know, freed of a lot of the oversight and governance that you would ordinarily see in a large drug development organization. So it was something that, you know, I had thought about a lot for sure. So in terms of process and system and operating, I had certainly considered, you know, in large pharma, in, in, in BMS, 
how to bring that kind of agility to drug development. So fast forward, you know, in a biotech, I think the first thing to anchor on is that we are a a diagnostic company, but we actually are a a drug device combination. And so a lot of our early development, in fact, our our development pathway is more heavily guided by a drug development pathway rather than a pure diagnostic pathway. So a lot of what we're thinking about is more drug related. And in fact, I, I think, you know, folks who are listening to this who have experience in drug development would probably find enormous familiarity in what we do um, and, and maybe less so on the on sort of on the diagnostic side. So that is just, uh, I think, an important anchor for my experience and, and for, for people who are listening. So what we have tried to do at Glimpse is, yes, I mean, absolutely be agile to, to drive very fast decision making, to be able to sort of shift our approach when the data And I think this is the key, right? This is the key value. You can shift your approach as quickly as possible when the data suggests that that's appropriate, rather than having to go through sort of extensive rounds of assessment and decision-making. That's where large companies, uh, I think, generally lose their ground versus biotechs. That there's person one sees the data, they discuss it with the rest of their team, their team have to then give it to someone else. And, you know, 20 later, you know, a decision gets made, you know, in a biotech, you see the data on day one and two hours later, you've made a decision on what to do. And, and so preserving that kind of agility or, or leveraging that kind of agility is sort of the key piece. I was very mindful of that, right? I didn't want to create you know, too much process, but equally you want disciplined decision-making, right? What I have tried to do, I think simply put, is blend the discipline that, that came from you know, having been part of very rigorous, scientifically driven, very successful organizations, both at Merck and BMS, with the agility that you can have in a tiny company where you can drive very, very fast decision making. Um, you have a lot more, you know, essentially freedom to operate because, you know, you've got everyone in, all the decision makers are in one room or you can have them in one room at once. And that's where the value really comes. You don't want to create, you know, too much structure. You want to allow people to, you know, come together to think about problems and to solve them and to be able to move forward without, you know, too much process around them. I, I guess that's probably how I've mostly thought about it. So it's been it's been a lot of fun though. And, and I have to say that, you know, we were able to be very, certainly in all of our process up to initiating our pivotal study, which we can talk about later, we were able to be extremely nimble. And it was just, I think, almost astonishing to me, you know, as I look back at it now, the pace at which we, we were able to move. So it's true, right? Everyone out there is saying, you know, is it really true? Yes, it is really true. <laughs> I have to compare and contrast. I mean, I don't think anyone who has moved from large pharma to, to a small company would say the same thing. That's interesting, you know, uh, coming from the tech world, I always sort of juxtapose going from a big company in the tech world to a small company, it's like oil and water. But I feel like in the life science industry, you juxtapose that with being a very natural transition because I think the value inflection points in a biotech are nominally similar, right, to a larger company. And it sounds like a lot of the rigor, as you put it, is still very valuable and relevant to even an emerging company. Absolutely. The, the rigor is really important. I think that where you see issues, you know, in any company, right? It's it's some it's not always, but occasionally it's because that that thread has been lost, right? That sometimes maybe steps have been missed or mistakes have been made. I mean, it doesn't happen that often, but occasionally it happens. When you think about people transitioning from one area to another, right? From large, you know, a large company to a small company. I'm interested in your perspective on this too. You know, I think that there can be a natural fit, right? There is a sense of kind of culture and. 
some people do prefer to have a lot more structure and a lot more process and a lot more kind of, if you want infrastructure around them, supporting them in that decision-making. And some people are much more comfortable with that freedom to operate in that, if you want that ambiguity. And so I, I, for me, that's the biggest thing, right? I would, I do not say to everyone that I talk to, come and do this because it's great, right? I, I have to love it, but I would not recommend it to everyone because I, there are people I know and they're really good friends of mine in a large farmer who I know would be a fish out of water. They would find it very uncomfortable to have that ambiguity and that speed and you know, that lack of infrastructure around them. So it, it, you have to know what, you have to be true to yourself. I mean, I think that's the really important thing, right? It's not for everyone. It might sound cool and sexy, but, you know, it's not, if it's not your thing, it's not your thing. And that's fine. <laughs> we need all of these pieces in the ecosystem. That's really important, right? There's an ecosystem for a reason. And it's comprised in biotech of, you know, it, the small biotech companies that, you know, the academic architecture, which is actually quite broad and diverse now, and the large pharma institutions, and, and they're, they're there, you know, they're all contributing differently, but with these inter- points of intersection that are creating a lot of value. And they're, they're all there doing different things in different ways for a reason. You know, if it's all right with you, Caroline, I'd love to just maybe depart from our, our initial topic, because I think what you've just highlighted is something I think that's really interesting and changing rapidly in the life sciences domain, which is, and I don't know how to describe it well, but I feel like the talent model is evolving. You have this high degree of diffusion of personnel from big companies to small companies. You have transfection of small companies and innovation going into bigger companies. You have venture firms who are creating their own biotechs. Given that you have a more of an operational background and experience in, say, five, 10 years, what does that talent model, what does that career path look like for a biotech executive? Do we know? What do you think that looks like? You know, I'm not, I don't know that I'm willing to predict like what that career path looks like, but I believe there are some things, it was interesting, someone asked me this earlier today, and I, I tend to think about it in terms of what skills do people need, right? It's not, you know, it's sort of what capabilities do you need to be successful? I think what's happening is that it's the notion of the diversity of teams, right? You're seeing much more integration of activities in different, you know, functional settings, if you want. And the people who are going to succeed, right, the real leaders who are going to emerge are going to be integrators, right? And those are often people who create very, you know, visceral like polarizing reactions. Sometimes like people who are absolutely beloved, right? They can create, you know, large integration of very different diverse viewpoints and they, and they can drive great innovation. And then you can have people who are doing that who, who create a lot of friction in the organization, but they still drive great innovation, right? They're, they're very, they can be very polarizing figures. But those integrators, I think you're going to see in the future are more the, the kind of leaders who will emerge. And it's interesting, someone was saying to me earlier that, you know, you've sort of seen through COVID that sort of the, the verticals are breaking down because people have been virtual and the teams have had to integrate more. And so you've seen this natural integration in ways that didn't happen previously. And I think it's just an acceleration of essentially that process. But it is, I think it's about this notion of integration. However that happens, but people have to build that muscle, right? They have to be integrators. They have to recognize that it's that diversity of thought. It's how you create these inclusive teams. It's how you integrate together that it is going to drive the next wave of innovation. Uh, I think in science, we talk about it as like systems thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Uh, as well as 
I think in the context of a life sciences company, it's sort of like company building, right? At the systems level. You know, maybe with that, I'd love to just hear a little bit about the time and the learnings you've had building Glimpse, as well as, you know, maybe some of the initial indications that the team is pursuing. It's been exciting. So when I joined, there's just a back to kind of career choice. So I came from, you know, giant organization and I had really thought that I had wanted to run a, like a, you know, well-established organization with clinical programs and whatnot, because, you know, that sort of seemed like a logical thing. And after I spent, I sort of went on this year journey, sort of thinking about it and talking to a lot of people. And I realized what I really love to do is to build things. <laughs> it's like I'm a builder. <laughs> I have to solve problems and build things. And so the idea of like a blank sheet of paper to build something was you know, really appealing. And so when I found Glimpse and this technology that was just, they had, you know, sort of done the early preclinical work, they had found that, you know, really had something very real that was really like ready to be you know, kind of go through, you know, more preclinical work and move into a clinic. It was kind of like its moment, right? But it was ready to be built into a company. And so I joined Glimpse to build the company. And there were just a few people when I joined. And now, you know, a couple of years on, gone through our first in human, we're about to move into late stage clinical development. We build a whole company now. Those are sort of exciting moments, of course, with twists and turns. But to join from the start when we were in an incubator space, you know, just a couple of people and, you know, you're figuring everything out, right? And, and people tell these stories. Everyone's doing everything. Everyone's pitching in. And, and we, get, we got to do everything from the very exciting science, designing, you know, our first, you know, clinical study, right? Incredibly exciting. Uh, and, and before that, we had some stunning preclinical data as well, but sort of all in that, you know, first year and building the team to support that to uh, leasing a, I don't know, 22,500 square foot space and designing that and building that from like a shell. <laughs> I mean, you know, it ranges from, you know, the experiences are so diverse. It's just exhilarating. It, it's really exhilarating. And to, and to look back on it now, it is just stunning to me how much we've done. And now we're with 20 people. It just, you know, it's incredibly exciting, right? We've built out the entire breadth of our organization. It's been great. Absolutely great. Great, Caroline. And and would be very curious to understand the calculus around the first indication that you're pursuing mm-hmm. and why you selected that and where you are from a development perspective now. NASH is our first indication. So NASH is a fatty liver disease. Uh, you know, it affects about 20 million people in the U.S. Actually, a disease without any therapeutic right now. In the later stages, which sort of affects about 3 million people, and in the very advanced stages, a, a small subset of that, um, actually leads to cirrhosis and, and people need to have a liver transplant, very severe disease. And in a small percentage of patients, that progression is very fast from start to end. And in most, it's like a 10 plus year journey. But it's a severe disease. It's, you know, it's progressing, you know, significantly globally and in the U.S. population. And right now, there's no good test that can both sort of measure the spectrum of the disease as well as determine the response to, to treatment. And our diagnostic has preclinically shown that it can do both of those things, which is very valuable. And the sort of the standard of care diagnostic today is actually a, a needle biopsy. That's as horrible as it sounds. So you have a, a needle that's, that's injected into the liver that takes a tiny sample. It, it's a very heterogeneous test. Uh, it's not very accurate. It's not something that you can repeat. It can have bad side effects. And so, you know, finding something that is safe and repeatable, uh, you know, non-invasive is highly valuable. And so we ended up focusing on NASH as our first indication because 
the way that we've designed our biomarkers, they have natural predisposition towards the liver. So it's an easy organ for us to target. It's also highly protease mediated. So it sort of has a high proliferation of proteases. So it was very good organ for us to pick to sort of tune a biomarker set to. But it's also one, of course, where, you know, with NASH, there's a very high unmet medical need as well. So it was a nice kind of confluence of biology with unmet medical need. So that's why we're, we're focusing there. The therapeutics that are coming to the market, you know, it's a case where those therapeutics really need a diagnostic to be able to start to penetrate the market because patients need to be diagnosed. And then we need to understand where those treatments are working. And so, you know, it's one of those situations where coming to market sort of around the same time as the therapeutics is, is really something that's going to be very important for patients to end up being treated. Well, you, you know, obviously, given that companies focused on a given indication and isn't explicitly designing its own medicines, I'd imagine partnering is probably a key way to sort of go to market and, and bring your technology to the masses. Given that you're an early stage company, we'd love to hear a little bit about both the partnership strategy you took. Second, sort of maybe some of the key partners um, Glimpse has today, as well as maybe any learnings you could share for other early stage companies in a similar boat. It is. It's a great observation. And one of the early things that I thought about when I came to Glimpse was, you know, exactly what this partnership strategy should be. You know, as I described earlier, that the technology is ideally suited to really helping kind of unpick some of the questions that are that sort of plague the drug development arena. And so, you know, if we can become integrated into that process, you know, we, we certainly can potentially add a lot of value. You know, that is how sort of the technology has, has played out. So we, of course, you know, like many companies uh, at our stage, uh, you know, spend a lot of time talking to pharma companies about how our technology can potentially add value. And one of our very earliest partners has been Gilead. And we, in fact, have a, a publicly announced large partnership with Gilead for late stage clinical development. But in fact, that partnership has been something that has evolved over a long period of time. And I think that's what's, you know, the really interesting thing about this and in general, how you see many of these partnerships evolve. So, you know, way back when sort of when a technology was more nascent, uh, we started with a preclinical partnership with Gilead. And so they have sort of walked the journey of our technology evolution with us. We have spent a lot of time you know, learning about the technology with them, but also learning about how the technology can be valuable in the context of drug development. And that's, you know, that's really important, right? We were not, you know, sitting around and kind of imagining this by ourselves. And I think that's, you know, a really kind of critical piece of this idea, right? We, you know, I think every biotech company can sort of sit around and say, you know, my technology should be useful, but until you've really spent time with, you know, potential partners and understood what that utility is, you, you can't really understand that. And in the end, that, that use case comes from starting to have early partnerships, starting to understand that utility. And with Gilead, we walked that journey. We went through several rounds of collaboration with them. And then eventually, you know, they felt very excited about the technology. And now we have this late stage clinical development partnership. And so I think in general for us, we're not in a rush to have many collaborations for, for a biotech company or a company like ours. It's not sustainable to have many collaborations. It's too much resource, right? You can't do it well. And to be successful, you know, you need to deliver on those. So we want to find the right kinds of partnerships. And we want to have ones like the, you know, the great collaboration that we've had with Gilead, where we can develop our technology in parallel with the work that they're doing and in a way that ends up being, you know, meaningful in the end for patients, but also in that, in this case, to sort of support the, you know, the evolution of their portfolio. In, in that context, you know, when you look at the 
partnership timeline from the first discussion till that clinical partnership was signed? What was the timeline? How long of a journey was that? The first discussion about a clinical partnership until we signed the actual deal, right? So not a term sheet. That was probably a good, like it was well over a year. The gestation period for a pharma deal will be a good year process. It was certainly well in that time frame, if not a little bit longer, for sure. And you mentioned something about, you know, finding the right partner. And mm-hmm. for those folks that are that are listening, that are thinking about partnerships, is there you know any guidance or framework that you use to decide you know who is a good partner now versus not so great right now? It was helpful for me having had the experience of being at two major pharma companies, um, you know, at Merck and BMS, and and seeing how collaborations with smaller biotechs did or didn't work. And it's sort of all about expectations and setting expectations and understanding, you know, who's going to, to do what. And everyone goes into these things with good intention, but sometimes, you know, just doesn't quite work out, you know, so, so that's sort of very important. We, we were very clear uh, going into our collaboration or also the, the, the collaboration that we wanted, exactly what we expected to be able to do or what we expected to do and what we, we needed the partner to be able to do in that collaboration, right? So that was sort of, that was one thing, <laughs> You have to be very transparent about that, right? You can't sort of sign a deal and say, oh, well, you know, but we thought you were going to do X, right? Or, you know, you can't change that afterwards, right? There's no like post-game rehash, right? The deal is the deal. <laughs> and so you have to be very transparent. You have to be very clear. And we were looking for a company we want with Gilead, right? In this case, we wanted to work with a company that was a leader in the Nash marketplace that had a portfolio in Nash that had deep scientific expertise in NASH. There were certain things that we wanted, right? Table stakes. But we also wanted a company with a really good partnering reputation, right? One that was known for actually like supporting their partner during the process. There were certain things, you know, that you can do diligence on that, that we were looking for. And Gilead kind of hit all of those things for us. And in the end, for us, right? And I think it depends on, you know, technologically what you're looking for, but we were going through a complex, or we are going through a complex development with our technology. And so we needed a partner who was really going to bring a scientific game to the table with us, right? A clinical development game to the table who could really help us in that process, right? Who was going to augment the capabilities that we were bringing to the table. And, you know, we felt that Gilead, like hands down, was going to do that in in the Nash arena. And so that was the reason that we chose them. And I think you can figure that for the area that, you know, you're in and you're thinking about, you can generally, you know, discern that in the the conversation. So that would be my guiding principles. In the end, not all deals, my point of view is not all deals are created equal and it shouldn't just be a deal for a deal's sake. It's not just about, in inverted commas, non-dilutive funding, right? It's... (laughs) You know, that, that comes at a price and, and non-dilutive is generally not so non-dilutive, right? There's a there's a price that comes with it. And you have to think very carefully about what that price is to your company. Great. Thanks, Caroline, for sharing your knowledge on partnerships, on, on making the transition from big pharma to the diagnostic space. I think we, we covered a multitude of topics and really looking forward to continuing to track Glimpse's progress and, and the exciting opportunity ahead for you and the team. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure and I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. 
Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.